got a little topsy-turvy. Whoa. Is that me? Uh, we were supposed to have a, I don't know if y'all remember, but we were supposed to have a guest speaker last week, and uh, he couldn't make it. So I finished up James uh, chapter 4 last week, and I decided that uh, it would be good for us to go ahead and move into uh, thinking about Christmas. And so open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 11, because you probably are like, that's exactly the kind of passage that I would expect if David was going to start this morning thinking about Christmas. Uh, but I, I think you'll see that there is some connection here to the season that we're in. A couple of weeks ago, um, we were just having our normal evening, and as you know, it gets dark earlier now, and there was no storms, there was nothing, nothing going on, and then all of a sudden, all of, our, all of our lights went out, and I went outside, and most of the lights, all the lights around us, I think there was a football game going on over at Calvary, the lights were out at Calvary, all as far as I could see, the lights were out, and it turns out that uh, um, an 18-wheeler, I guess, was trying to turn around in Memorial Hospital's uh, entryway there, right next to the Ronald McDonald House, and it hit an electrical pole and knocked it over and just took the power out like all over uh, our part of Savannah. And then, I don't know if you guys heard this, I think it's kind of been in the news, but last week somebody shot up uh, a power station in Moore County, North Carolina, and took out all the power for 40,000 people, and now it seems like, you know, power stations are becoming like a national security issue, and, and if somebody could do lasting damage to the power grid, then, you know, an enemy could really alter our way of life, and I bring that up because in many ways, God's promises are, are like power lines. They're, they're really, really important to sort of energizing our faith. God's mercy and His, His, His grace flow through to us through His promises. And we are saved by grace through faith, through those promises. So, my question for the morning is then, what would happen if one of those promised power lines, as we'll call it, got cut? And by cut, I mean, what if Satan was actually able to intervene in human history in a way that would make one of God's promises, that would thwart one of God's promises. And God has made all of His promises known to us, right? The promises that are central to our faith are known to us. But, but here's the thing, Satan knows them too. At every point where God gave a promise to a human being, Satan was right there listening. And it's almost like that God has like stretched these power lines, these very, very important power lines out in enemy territory, right out in the open, and, and it's almost as if God has sort of said, do your best. Do, do your best to see if you can break those power lines. All right, so at Hope Bible Church, uh, we like to talk about progressive revelation, okay? So, God starts with these sort of seminal promises in the Old Testament. They're, they're very essential to our faith, and He, he builds on those promises. And, and, and the earliest promises, God, God never changes those promises, but He adds to them. And we learn more and more about those promises as we go throughout 
the history of the Scriptures. So I would say that the first and sort of seminal promise is that that promise that we find in Genesis 3.15, where God says to Adam and Eve after the fall, and again, remember, the serpent is like right there. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's going to be this, this deliverer that comes He's, he's going to come, and that's all we know. And I, and I would say, just, just so you're clear, you know, Adam and Eve weren't responsible to put their faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, right? They were, they were only responsible to put their faith in the revelation that God had given them to that point. They needed to believe that a, belie- that a Messiah, a, 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 a deliverer was going to come who was going to stomp the head of that serpent. And then 2,000 years later, God appears to this man, Abram, and he says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and and, uh, him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so God reaffirms that promise to Abraham four more times, and he says things like, your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. He says all of these things. He reiterates that promise to, to, to Abram's sons, uh, Isaac and, and um, Jacob, and, and, then, and then eventually Joseph and, and, and the, the, the sons that, that go forth from them. And then on his deathbed, Jacob gathers his 12 sons to his side And he pronounces these blessings, and he says to his son Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. All right, so before we've even gotten out of the book of Genesis, we know that there's going to be this deliverer come who comes, and he's going to come through the family of Abraham because that's, that's how the world is going to be blessed. And now we know that, that this king is going to come through the line of Judah. So we're, you can see there we're getting, we're getting more revelation and things are getting more specific. And I would contend, don't forget, Satan is listening the whole time. Hmm. So if I could stomp out the line of Judah, he's thinking things like that. And then 100 years later, hundreds of years later, God appears, uh, speaks to his servant David in 2 Samuel 7. And he says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom will be established forever before you. Your throne will be established forever. So God is going to establish the line of David as king forever. Unlike Saul, who lost his dynasty, David's descendants will continue to reign, culminating in this one who will reign forever. And we know that God expects faithful people to believe what he has said. Remember, we saw this in James. We saw that God said uh, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We're trusting in these promises, and that is the material of our faith. And add to this the fact, too, that God puts his whole reputation out there to say, I always keep my word. I always do 
what I'm going to say. He is faithful. His word will not fail. And God's great adversary in eyes is listening, ours is listening to every promise. And in the garden, as he speaks to Adam and Eve, right there in that same paragraph, you know, where, where he's promising that, 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 that there's going to be this Messiah, you've got to imagine that, that right there, Satan's rage is, is building. Satan's rage, Satan's desire to thwart God's promises. And he's a liar and he's a murderer, and, and as he heard each promise, he, he becomes more and more determined to thwart God's plans. I'd say to you guys that Satan knows the promises of God better than we do, and he would like nothing more than to thwart those promises. Which brings me then to 2 Kings 11, all right? And this is an unconventional Christmas story, but it is a Christmas story that I like because I think it's a nice way for us to sort of come into this season. And this is the title of my sermon today. As you know, I I don't always have titles, but when I do, I give them to you. So the title of the sermon today is The Woman Who Saved Christmas. All right, and this is a great story from the Old Testament, but this morning we're going to spend most of our time just with the first three verses. So look at 2 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death, and she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah, so that he was not to be put to death. And he remained with her six years hidden in the house of the Lord while Athaliah reigned over the land. Okay, now even as we think about reading the Bible together next year, this is one of those passages that it's really easy to just sort of pass over because it feels like that this is just data that's going to be necessary for the rest of the story. And it's a very interesting story that follows. But there's a lot packed into these three verses right here. Okay, and so we're going to take them just one, two, three. And the first verse, here's what I want you to see in the first verse. The satanic fury of God's enemies, the satanic fury of God's enemies. Now, let me introduce you to this woman who finished last in the Grandmother of the Year Awards in B.C. 840, all right? Her name was Queen Athaliah of Judah. So how in the world did Queen Athaliah get to be on the throne of the southern kingdom? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. So Athaliah's ascent to the throne begins kind of a generation before her with a king that you probably have heard of named Jehoshaphat, right? So Jehoshaphat is generally considered to be a good king. He made a lot of reforms. He wanted to obey Yahweh, but what he did is he made some bad alliances. Old Testament scholars really find Jehoshaphat to be a very a kind of an enigmatic figure because he, he trusted the Lord in some ways, but then as soon as Judah was threatened, Jehoshaphat didn't depend on God's promises to protect them. He turned to other nations for help. So in 2 Chronicles 18.1 we read, Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he allied himself by marriage with King Ahab. Now, you know King Ahab. King Ahab was the king in the northern king of, king of Israel, kingdom of Israel, and he was famously married to a wicked woman named Jezebel. Now, Jezebel 
sought to replace the worship of Yahweh entirely with the worship of Baal, all right? Other kings, other wicked kings had sought to to cause people to worship idols sort of along with Yahweh, but Ahab and Jezebel were especially wicked because they tried to replace the worship of Yahweh altogether. And Athaliah was their daughter. Athaliah was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and she was very well discipled in the worship of Baal by her mother. All parents teach their children to worship their gods. And so Jezebel and Ahab had taught Athaliah to worship Baal. Inexplicably, Jehoshaphat marries his son Jehoram to Athaliah to make an alliance with Israel. Be very careful with who you marry, all right? So here's the commentary then from 2 Kings 8. This is about Jehoram. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. How much evil did he do? Second Chronicles 20 tells us, when Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he killed all of his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. All right, so Jehoram and his pagan wife, Athaliah, even when Jehoram is reigning, he starts a project of eliminating all the other potential pretenders to the throne. And in 2 Chronicles 21, we're told that God sends the Philistines and the Arabs against him, and they carry away his household, and God judges him. Here's the commentary on Jehoram from 2 Chronicles 21. After all this, the Lord struck him in his bowels, with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great agony. His people made no fire in his honor like the fires made for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he departed with no one's regret. Who doesn't want to read this? This is interesting stuff. You've got to commit to reading the Bible in a year because you get to read about things like Jehoram and his bowels coming out, right? You'll find this stuff all over the Old Testament. All right, so let's just pause for a second and notice the generational consequences of Ahab's sin. His, I'm sorry, Jehoshaphat's decision to make this alliance with Ahab. Because God has always promised that he will protect his people. And had Jehoshaphat prayed to God and asked for help, God would have helped him. And we see this again and again. But instead, Jehoshaphat makes this alliance with Ahab, and it has disastrous consequences. And so my encouragement to us, my admonishment, I should say to us this morning, is don't underestimate the, 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 the danger of deciding not to trust God. Don't underestimate the danger of deciding not to trust God, not even in the little things. Choose to trust in other things. It may seem insignificant at the time, and right now, you guys, it's very easy to find ways, things to put our trust in other than God, but the consequences of that could could be generational. When crisis comes, whether big crisis or little crisis, the temptation is to deal with it quickly without seeking God's will. We talked about this in James chapter 4 last week. The sin of ungodliness is the sin that causes us to go through our days and our weeks with no thought of God. And it means that we don't run to him in our times of need. And really, too, this is what's interesting. Jehoshaphat was just doing what all the nations do. Like, so 
If we want to pay attention to conventional wisdom, if we want to pay attention to the way that the world deals with their problems, we can just look to them and see what they do to disastrous consequences. Like Jehoshaphat marrying uh, uh, his daughter to Ahab's daughter, like if, other, if, if he had gone to other kings in that day and said, what do you think, you know, we're being invaded, we need some help from the north, should I marry my, my uh, son to Ahab's daughter? They would have been like, yeah, of course, that's right, that's what, that's what all the kings do. But he didn't go to God. He didn't ask God. And like us, he just assumed that since everybody around him did it, it must be okay. And so not trusting God is not a small sin. All right, so King Ahaziah. So Jehoram and Athaliah have a son, and his name is Ahaziah. And he ascends to the throne at age 22. He does evil in the sight of the Lord. He joins forces with the king of the northern kingdom against the king of Assyria. He gets wounded. In the meantime, there's this guy named Jehu, who God calls out, to go and wreak havoc on Ahab's line. He wants him to, like, eliminate the line of Ahab because Ahab has been so wicked, and Jehu gets, like, overly excited about his job, and he goes and kills Ahaziah too, all right? So now Ahaziah is dead, and Ahab is dead, and Jezebel is dead, and guess who's queen in Judah? Athaliah. Do you see the devastating consequences of Jehoshaphat's decision not to trust God two generations ago. Paul tells the the Ephesians, don't even let the devil have a foothold. And I would submit to you this morning that Jehoshaphat, even though he was a godly man, he gave the devil a foothold in the nation of Judah, and a generation later there was a pagan queen sitting on the throne. She is not of the line of David. And in the midst of all this chaos and wickedness, I would say that Satan sees his chance to go after one of those promise power lines because Athaliah kills all of her grandchildren. She kills all of Ahaziah's children, and those children represent the last remnant of the seed of David. How much did she know or care about Yahweh's promise to David? It's hard to say. She was a devoted follower of Baal. She must have known something about the fact that she was extinguishing this line of faith in Yahweh. And you guys, understand, if you were a faithful person living in Judah in that day, from your perspective, the seed of David was gone. It was eliminated. The enemy had sabotaged the power line. There was no more son of David to sit on the throne. Now, before we get to the reveal, there is something I think very cyclical about sin, and Satan's plans haven't changed a whole lot over the millennial and I, I, the millennia. And I would just like to point this out: he loves to kill babies. If Satan can thwart God's promises and kill babies, he'll do it because more babies means more opportunities in his eyes for humanity to be redeemed and to advance God's purposes. And so we see in Pharaoh, when he decides to eliminate the newborn babies in an attempt to wipe out the Hebrews, we see Athaliah murdering the the royal grandchildren. We see Herod trying to snuff out the Messiah by ordering the murder of all the male babies to and under in Bethlehem. Pagan cultures throughout history have been obsessed with sacrificing their babies to false god, and still still today we worship false gods uh, of sexual freedom by aborting our babies. 
the satanic fury of Satan, of God's enemies against the enemies, enemies will, the innocents will not stop until Jesus returns. And neither will Satan's fury at the promises of God. Again, I just want to point out, the faithful of Judah must have been in despair. There's no more line of David. For six long years, they must have wondered, how will God possibly come through? Thankfully, I always like to say, Athaliah was a terrible grandmother on two counts. First of all, she tried to kill all of her grandbabies. Secondly, she forgot one. All right, so number two, the simple faithfulness of God's servants. The simple faithfulness of God's servants. Let me read verse two for you again. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death, and she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. So, wicked King Jehoram had a daughter named Jehoshaphat, all right? Um, so we don't know much about her. She shows up here in this one verse to play a very important part in this story. If it weren't for Jehoshaphat, we would not be singing Christmas carols today. Somehow, knowing about Athaliah's murderous rampage, Jehoshaphat sweeps up one of the royal babies into her arms and whisks him and his nurse away to a bedroom. All right? That's interesting because the word here actually means a room filled with beds. It was a storage room with beds and couches in the temple. This one woman single-handedly stopped the entire Davidic line from being snuffed out. She knew the good she should do, and she did it. She saw the opportunity, and she acted. Jehoshaphat saved Christmas. Last week we saw James say, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Jehoshaphat did what was in front of her to do, and in doing so, she became a part of God's plan to keep his promises. Brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the importance of those little acts of obedience that come before you. Many faithful parents have toiled in obscurity and raised godly children who were great servants of the Lord. Many faithful Sunday school teachers have influenced a young person who went on to be a faithful adult. That $50 a month that you scrape up to give to a missionary may be used by God to bring a nation back to the Lord. You can't solve the world's problems, but you can help another person, especially when that person is right in front of you. And I would say this too, just like our choices to not trust God can have an effect on generations, our choices, even the little ones to trust him, can, have, can, can, can make, make a difference in the generations to come. We never hear of Jehoshaphat again. We only know of her because of this one faithful act, but no faithful act escapes the notice of God. All of them are recorded in his books, and all of his faithful servants will be rewarded Many today receive accolades from the world, but those rewards fade. Those who are rewarded by the Lord will reap those rewards forever. Which brings me to point number three, the sure future of God's kingdom. Verse three, and he remained with, with her six years hidden in the house of the Lord while Athaliah reigned over 
the land. For six years, the king remains hidden. For six years, Satan's servant sits on the throne. But the true king was hidden away to be revealed at the proper time. And I love the fact that he was hidden away right there in the house of the Lord. Now in that day, the house of the Lord had become a desolate place. Athaliah had built a temple to Baal that you can read about down in verse 18. And then when Jehoash comes to the throne, the little baby, he actually begins raising money to repair the temple because it's been so neglected. I think one of the reasons that the child was able to remain safe in the house of the Lord for six years is because not many people darken the doors of the house of the Lord. But no doubt a few faithful did. Some tearful worshipers must have been there in the temple day after day, believing Yahweh, but wondering how in the world are your promises going to come true? How are you going to keep your promises, O God? And the answer to their prayer was in a storage closet in the same building where they prayed. Again, the Bible is so cyclical. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. A short time later, the wise men show up in Jerusalem and they ask Herod, where can we find the newborn king? Caesar and Herod are living in splendor in Rome and Jerusalem, respectively. All the while, the faithful are on their knees in the temple saying, how long, O Lord? And in that day, the true king of glory was in a feeding trough in a little town called Bethlehem. The kings are in their palaces. They think they're doing their thing, but the true king is right where God intends for him to be. Do you wonder how is God going to deliver you? Do you look at the promises of scripture and feel like how are they ever going to be fulfilled? Today the rulers of the world they think that they have it all together in their palaces and their parliaments, but the true king is today seated next to the father and we can't see him. The faithfulness of God rested on that little baby in that room where the beds were stored and today the faithfulness of God rests on real, a real human Christ who sits in the heavens. And we can't see him either. But unlike the people of Judah in 840 BC, we know he's there because God told us that he is there. And because he lives, we have hope. So let me tell you the rest of the story. I love the story. Six years later, Jehoiada the priest realizes that it's time to end Athaliah's reign of wickedness. And he calls the captains of the guards and, and if you've read the passage, you see that something called the Karaites, which seem to be some kind of like international mercenaries. And he brings them to the temple and he swears them to secrecy. And he shows them little Joash, who's now seven years old. Do we have any seven-year-olds today in the audience? Any? We got a couple? Yeah, I see a couple of hands. Can you imagine what it would be like to suddenly be brought out into the temple and have a crown put on your head and to be told you are now the king of Judah? what happened to little Jehoash. I think it's interesting too that so many of the soldiers are willing to participate in this coup against Athaliah. She obviously had some followers, but she didn't have the hearts of everybody. In times of great darkness, brothers and sisters, God always has his people. Elijah despaired in the days of Jezebel saying, I'm the only one left. And God came to him and said, no, you're not. I've got 7,000 faithful followers. So Jehoiada secures the house of the Lord, and on the Sabbath, these captains of the hundreds, using the weapons of King David, surround little Johash so that nobody is able to get through, and Jehoiada comes, and he brings the, cr- the crown, and he places it on the head of the little boy, and he gives him a copy of the law, because that's what all the kings have. 
when they come to the throne. And all the people in, in attendance shout, long live the king. And this must have been, if you were a faithful person in Judah, I mean, your heart must have come alive. What? He's alive? There's a king? There's a person from the line of David alive? The promises of God can be trusted no matter how they appear. Remember Abram? Remember Abraham? He's told to take his son Isaac to the mountain and sacrifice him, and it's like, this is the heir. How can I sacrifice the heir? I don't know, but I'm going to trust God. And remember how the writer of Hebrews says that Abraham even thought, well, I guess he's going to raise him from the dead. Faithful people assume that God is going to keep his promises. So wicked Athaliah hears the commotion, and she comes rushing into the temple, and she finds this seven-year-old boy wearing the crown of a king, and immediately she shrieks, and she tears her robes, and she screams, treason! But Jehoiada's got that covered too. He commands that she be taken away from the temple. I love that he's like, we're not going to do this here. She's taken away from the temple, and she's taken out next to the horse's entrance, and she's put to death. And the six-year, seven-year reign of this wicked queen comes to an end with little resistance. In the final verses of the chapter, the people of Judah go to this temple of Baal, and they tear it down. And they find this priest of Baal that Athaliah has installed. His name is Matan. And they put him to death as well. And the people rejoice. And I just love the way you have this picture there of when God's faithfulness becomes apparent, when people's hearts are enlightened to see that God is alive and that his promises are real and that he's doing things, that there's this immediate desire to repent and then eradicate the sin. Let's, let's get the sin out. God is who he claims to be. We see him for, food, for who he is, and our response to that should be, let's get the sin out. Let's repent. And so the power is restored. God's promises stand because of one faithful woman. We are here today celebrating the birth of baby Jesus. All right, you're in 2 Kings right now. Go right to Isaiah real quick. Isaiah, also chapter 11. With this, I will close. We're dealing with God's promises this morning. These are the power lines that are essential to our faith. There have been other times in human history when it seemed like this line of David was no more. And from a human point of view, there seemed like there was no way that these promises could be fulfilled. Isaiah chapter 11, look at verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It says, there shall come forth a shoot. It's, it's, it's a twig. A little tiny branch is going to sprout out from what looks like a dead stump. And that stump is the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. At the time of Jesus' birth, the line of David seemed like it was dead. It seemed like it had been cut down. And Isaiah says, but from that dead, decaying stump, a little tiny living twig is going to, to burst forth. And then look down at verse 10, Isaiah eleven ten. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal of the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
It's a similar metaphor. Humble beginnings. I, I, I didn't know this, but I've never noticed. But King Saul, actually, when he's putting down David, when he's hunting David, he refers to David as the uh, son of Jesse. So it's a way of like putting David down. So it's a humble, it's a humble expression. The root, the stump of Jesse, a root will come forth and that will bear the fruit of the Messiah. I guess the Jesse tree, some of you have probably heard of this. I'd never heard of this until this week. It's an Advent tradition that goes back to the Middle Ages and they would have tapestries and stained glass windows depicting, depicting the Jesse tree at the roots and Jesus at the top branch. And there would be these pictorial representations all throughout the Jesse tree that unschooled people could learn the stories of Scripture from the time of creation all the way to the birth of Jesus. And if you're still unclear that that root of Jesse is Jesus, let me just, I'll just read it to you. One verse in the very last chapter of the whole Bible, Revelation 22:16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. God cannot be thwarted. Satan cannot thwart those promises. And we are here today and we will be here over the next couple of weeks and really in our whole lives to celebrate the fact that God is faithful. Brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, no matter how dark it looks, it may seem to you that there is no way that God can come through for you in your circumstances. I entreat you, trust Him. His promises are true. He has staked His reputation on His promises. Brothers and sisters, when you feel like sin has gotten the best of you, when you wonder, how can these besetting sins continue to afflict me? I've fought these things year after year after year. Remember that he has, says, has said, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. These are the promises that he has made. And he always, always, always keeps his promises. So let your heart be drawn to the promises of God this Christmas season, to the fulfillment of those promises, and as we look forward to the day when Jesus is going to come again, let our hearts be glad in that. We're going to turn now to the, to the Lord's table, to the Lord's supper. If, if you're here this morning and you're going to serve the, the bread and the cup, come up here. And the Lord's Supper, the observance of this little supper is really, it is our little act that we do week after week to come together and say, we believe in that promise. We believe that he is coming again. And so if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we would welcome you to partake in our little celebration that we're about to have. If you are not a follower of Jesus, if you have not trusted in those promises, then I would ask you to just refrain from taking and, and talk to one of us and let, you, let us help you understand so that maybe one week soon you could partake in this table with us in full understanding of what it is that we are celebrating. Take the bread and the cup, hang on to it, and I'll be up here in just a minute to lead us together.